Culture eats strategy for lunch, and informed cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts so that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. With us today is Stephanie. Stephanie, hi. Hi, thanks for having me on today. Stephanie Rennie, and I'm currently a senior manager of revenue management for Cisco's food distribution company. I've been in this role for about three years now, learned a lot, grown a lot, and I'm excited to share some of those experiences with you today. And so, Stephanie, you are part of our Emerging Leaders series. And today, what we're going to talk about is your perspectives. Like, where do, you know, what do you model your leadership on? Where do millennials, and particularly where do millennials get their, look their guidance on, right? I think we can all see that we've been at inflection points in how leadership happens, how company cultures are organized over the last two generations. And in particular, millennials are coming in and saying, looking at what works, what doesn't work, and what do, you know, what does this next generation want? And so I think the topic's going to be fun today. The discussion's going to be fun today. And it's looking at there is this bias that we can all see, not necessarily a bad, but just a bias towards what the larger, more successful and innovative companies have done from a leadership perspective. But that doesn't mean, and that bias can lead us to think that's the experiences of many people, right? right. And so what, we, what we're going to love hearing from you today is like, so out of many orgs across the world, you have some stories. And what are those different stories and the different cultural models on how people get support and how they learn and grow? Yeah, I so. think each generation has things that are important to them in their leadership style. And I'm sure they've mm -hmm. learned from leaders that have happened before them. So millennials, I feel like entering the workforce have this completely unique perspective on leadership that maybe the next generation will have something different than us. But and even within each organization, especially ones that are so big, like the one I'm currently working with. Each experience in leadership is different. Each experience as a subordinate is different. Direct report or an executive leadership. Every department is going to have a different experience. But I think there's some commonalities that I'm excited to talk mm -hmm. about today. What are your passion areas today? What, if, what do you focus on for your models of leadership? Well, yes, there's many different things, many different options. But you probably see you and your peers gravitating towards a few common things. What leaders or leadership model do you try to model? I think there's a few things that we want to avoid. I think a lot of our leadership styles are based most impactfully off of our negative experiences, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think there is something to be said about the positive experiences leadership. And of course, I'm sure we all have some of those. But the negative ones, I think, are really leading our influence into leadership, partly to avoid micromanaging, avoiding this hierarchy maintenance that you can't talk to somebody above you, fostering trust and things like that. I think some of the focuses on these days are making sure that we're not running into this perpetual loop of making mistakes and not correcting them. So as a leader, we want to instill the confidence in our direct reports to speak up when needed, learn, grow, and not have this anxiety-ridden fear that they're going to get fired or reprimanded significantly for some of the mistakes that they made. We're all human. Don't feel bad saying, talking about the negative, right? It's just as important in the know thyself and know what you want. It, you do want to know what you're heading towards, but also what you're heading away from, because it's 
you can fall into the trap of defi- defining things too much as a linear path and life is meandering. Absolutely. And so you have to know like the waypoints that you desire to go to and all that meandering as well as the things that you want to avoid. So I love that framing on that, the growth mindset that we talk a whole lot about. Right. As a, 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 But to have that growth mindset, we have to have freedom to make mistakes. We have to have freedom to learn from the mistakes and expectation that both leaders and those that they lead are held accountable to learning from those mistakes. Absolutely. I guess you talked, we hinted that a little bit, but what are those anti-patterns in leadership that you, that probably are still unfortunately common that you see or have experienced, but see or experienced? Yeah, I think there's two main considerations or negative components of leadership that I've seen. And I, I hear some of my peers experiencing one of which being micromanaging. Um, this is where you, they, your managers want you to document every minute of your day. They need to know exactly what task you're doing. And you have this nervousness if you step away from your computer to get lunch, that your green check mark is going to go yellow or somebody's going to notice that you're not at your desk for five seconds. And what is that, what is that telling your subordinates or your direct reports? It's saying, I don't trust you to get your work done and manage your time. And then those constant check-ins with your team, the unnecessary ones where your direct report isn't asking specific questions or needing an update on the project. It's ones that the managers are putting onto the schedule. And what does that say to your direct reports? It's saying, I don't trust you to do it the way that I want you to do it. So I think that's a huge component. And the other thing that I'm seeing a lot of avoidance in this new generation of leadership is this hierarchy maintenance. And what does that mean? It's it's a lot of leadership instills this fear to speak up, especially if something's going wrong, like we just discussed. No one wants to get yelled at. And we already have this fear of the workforce layoff and all that. Mm-hmm. So this natural fear of leadership and nervousness that you can't talk to somebody about what's going wrong or talk to somebody above you. Everything needs to be, there's a barking order and it's preventing people from progressing and treating people worse potentially in situations where the management feels like you need to be below me talent wise and your voice needs to be spoken once it goes through me and filtered to somebody higher. So there's this hierarchy maintenance that I think we're trying to erase now. I think we talked about this in one of our other discussions prior the book, The Culture Map, and now this is going to be the second time I've mentioned it in a podcast, Um, but I had a good friend recommended it. I read it. It was awesome. And, but I also couldn't necessarily associate with it in some ways because it mentioned many of the things that you talk about, like hierarchy, which I didn't necessarily see or experience that myself. Now, part of that's just my personality and how I would do things and certain aspects of being a man that I can also ignore hierarchy and get away with it. <laughs> um, but the, but there's also just in, in that book, for those that haven't read it yet, talks about just cultures all across the globe and just commonalities and cultures across the globe and how you can map and understand from one culture to the next so that you can be better at collaborating with that culture. But it's this, in mentioning that book, I wonder how much on this egalitarian mindset, there's several different cultures around the world where like there is more kind of group decision-making that perspectives across many aspects of the company are important. And it's doesn't matter if it's a CEO, you can call them out for things. So I, 
I'm just wondering then openly, is, is it all this influence, like all these generations of people coming in from other cultures across the globe, entering into leadership positions and all this, we're seeing hopefully a slow shift towards more openness and dialogue and learning and growth. Yeah. What's interesting when I went from um, senior analyst to management is one of my leaders made a comment, and I'm sure he doesn't remember saying this, but he said, now you get to peek behind the curtain. And I thought, oh, yay, I get to be involved in all these important meetings where all these decisions are happening and I get to see mm -hmm. everything that's going on. And sitting back now and thinking about it and having been in those meetings, a lot of the communication that's happening and the why behind what we're doing and how it's going to influence the business, how it's going to influence our direct reports and everybody across, even down to the customer level, is not being shared with the people that have to go do the work. We're trying to, I feel like in my leadership style, at least, and a lot of my coworkers, their leadership style is trying to get rid of the curtain and making sure we're having this open communication. They need to know at all times, like, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is how it's going to influence you. This is how it's going to influence our customers and not having this mystery behind the conversations had. Now, don't get me wrong. There's conversations that go on that don't need to be relayed. Maybe some frustration mm -hmm. in the room at an executive leadership that you don't want to necessarily pass along down the line because you want to foster an environment that's not full of negativity and arguments that happen during the decision making. But once something's made, there shouldn't be any confusion on how we got there. I have seen and always as aspired towards that kind of radical transparency. And I think that was another thing, just again, on that culture map book that I didn't relate to. Like they talked about the American ethos being more towards the leader that we see, like the archetype of the leader that tells everybody, has a vision and tells everybody what to do. And then American culture is very good at executing on the vision. Is that, and I want to know why. And yeah. that was more different and related to other, some European, but also some other and I forget which ones, but I definitely remember like Belgian culture was one of them. Hey, everybody wants to know why. They're all philosophers over there from what it sounds like. But to me, that's so important because if we, on the other side of it, if we talk about hiring very talented people, like the Richard Branson quote, hiring talented people and getting out of their way, or maybe jobs, but what's the point of hiring them if you don't tell them why we need to do something? Because all the other stuff is just how. And this, of course, intelligent people are going to ask, why do I need to do this? Tell me. I, it doesn't mean I don't believe you and what you're saying and right. how to do it is important. But I just need to know why. Yeah, I think it so also opens up this back and forth communication of, oh, okay, mm -hmm. so now that I know why, maybe I have a different approach that you didn't consider. So mm -hmm. let's talk about that. And maybe there's something better. I, in the military, there was a, a fear that you could only do it one way. And you're going to do it the mm -hmm. long way and it's going to take 30 people to do it and it's going to take 40 hours, even though you could probably have skipped half the steps doing it and still gotten to the same answer. So having that open communication and then everybody understanding why can garner some of those creativity solutions that I think could be missing if you don't have that communication piece. That's funny that you use that military example, like the army. Because then isn't that almost like the plot line for any movie about armed services? Is, of course. Yeah, but this is the procedure, but then we're going to do it this way. And it works brilliantly and like, the day is saved. Right? Yeah, it's those classic Russian jokes. The what, what kind of machinery is 
taking up tons of resources and is supposed to cut an apple into four pieces. Russian machinery that cuts apple into three pieces. Jeez, yes. Yeah, some people love the process. What are some of the leaders or leadership models that you are looking for inspiration for? You, know, you are at this, have been, and still are in this awesome kind of trajectory, right? I hate to say that where some of us that are a little older, that we're, we're not growing as much. We still grow a lot, but you are at this like rocket ship level growth and like how you are learning, what you're looking to take in, what you're absorbing, and then also thinking on past experiences and figuring out, are there new lessons from those past experiences? So what are you looking at? What do you model or attempt to model today? There's, I've had two really influential leaders in my past that have influenced me in a positive way. One from the army, and that mm -hmm. was an old first sergeant where I was already an overachiever, to be honest. <laughs> I did all the boards. I was great at PT, but I wasn't in the good old boys system at that point. And this new first sergeant mm -hmm. comes in and he's revolutionizing our unit in a way that he wants to lead with compassion and realism. Mm -hmm. It's not this iron fist where he, they're going to yell at you for every mistake that you make. And unless you're the favorite, then you get a pass. His style was, if you want it, then we'll get you there. Mm -hmm. And where I'm currently at also is another set of leadership that I've really enjoyed being underneath. They're not threatened by ambition and talent. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that I'm the smartest or the most talented in the room, but it is important to know the leadership that you're under. If they're threatened that you're going to surpass them one day, then they'll prevent you from surpassing them one day. So that's not the leadership that I'm under currently, and I'm loving it. They're, they have an open communication. They, share, they want you to share your ideas, your concerns. They want you to do research and mm -hmm. give you the opportunity to speak on things that you know about, speak to your results. They want you to get ahead and whether that meant or means data science or management or whatever modeling techniques, experimentation, if you have a goal, not to say that you're not going to do some of the difficult and mundane tasks, but they will help you get that goal without fear that of, oh, they're going to leave and I need to backfill. It's as you were saying that, I remembered another book. So talking about anti-patterns, all right. I think there's some goodness in this book, but it definitely fits the old school mindset. And I think it's called like the 48 Laws of Power. My dad gave it to me, also an army guy. But one of those in there was like, it was the never outshine the master. Um, and it used, I completely do not remember, but it was back before the French Revolution, used the example of one of the rich oligarchs that threw a par birthday party for the king and the king at the point did not have a lot of money. And so it was so obvious. And what he thought what he was doing was a nice thing and throwing the birthday party for the king. But what really showed is how he had so much more money than the king. Next day, he ends up in prison. But to your point, like I see that as an important shift in leadership. Like that I'm a personal fan of then that if you are building very highly talented and very powerful teams, you should absolutely expect somebody, like it should almost be your goal that they look better than you, that they do better than you. Right. Same thing with our kids. We want our kids to do better, right? Why not the people, why not also the people that we're bringing into our companies? And so, you know, that's a good book also. I have, now that I said this, I love them to go back and reread it and see it. it's probably not everything in there is an anti-pattern, but I remember a lot of it. It's like old Machiavellian style leadership principles. Some of those are probably anti-patterns. Probably a lot of those are anti-patterns, but definitely that one. 
I was definitely going to say, I feel like a proud mom when my direct reports are shining in an interview and they, they're they yeah. getting a lot of kudos and I'm not getting the recognition. That's fine. I'm glad that they're getting it. They make me look mm-hmm. good. It means that I did something right along the way in my leadership style that they have been given an environment to grow. And then somebody much wiser than me once said that if you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. I would rather surround myself with people that are far smarter and talented than I am so I can learn and grow and do all the things that I want to do. If I'm the smartest in the room, then who am I going to lean on for support and growth in my own life? I don't think we ever stop growing. Absolutely not. So now the other interesting question, when you are working with some of your peers or others that you're growing, mentoring, teaching, you know, what perspectives, you're in tech, right? And let's just out loud, like where it is a male dominated industry. So what would you advice would you give others that are coming up, other females that are coming up in tech that what are they, what should they be doing and seeking new or different as far as mentorship or leadership models or ways that they can succeed, right? Like where you, you may have had to cut your teeth in a way that you wouldn't want somebody else to have to go experience those same things. Okay, so to your point, I have spent a lot of time in male-dominated industries from the military and to my current role. And it's no surprise that there's a good old boy system. Rubbing Mm -hmm. elbows, likability is probably the most important quality when -hmm. you're trying to get ahead. And it's things that we already know, right? It's the, if you don't go golfing, then you're missing 70% of the deals. If you don't stay for happy hour, then you miss on the bonding experience. But if you're a woman, maybe you don't get invited to that golf game. Maybe you're accused of flirting during happy hour, even when you're making the same jokes as men. So there's a component of difficulty to even get into the boys club. And and I guess the second thing is that the trust curve is completely different. You and I have talked a little bit about this. When a man walks into a room, well-dressed, confident, you immediately trust him. You immediately trust kind of his result. Maybe you tune out a little bit. You're listening mm-hmm. for the key words, but you ultimately trust the logic and his rationale. Uh, when a woman does the same, maybe she's stuck up and people are hanging on every single word that they say, not because they trust her or that she has something serious to say, but because they're looking for holes or opportunities to say, I could have done this better. Now on the flip side, This is where I would say maybe a guiding principle for women is that people are hanging on every word we say, especially when we first walk into a room or we're first presenting. So use that to your advantage. Put Mm -hmm. the extra 150% effort that we need to put in preparation so that when they do try to poke holes, that's your opportunity to stand your ground and push back on that. Not only that'll show that you're a strong, competent leader, your results are sound and that you can combat any questions with logical rationale and answers that you know your work and that'll stand you firm in your position at the company. So on a related note then, what do you want, you know, for your team and others that you didn't have earlier in your career? So you as a leader, back to your point you made earlier, that's not, it's also about what you want to avoid. Mm-hmm. And as much as it is about what you want to do. So all of those experiences have shaped how you are looking and treating and mentoring and learning. So what what do you are what are you trying to implement that you didn't have earlier? Um, I think the main elements that I'm trying to implement are knowledge and mm-hmm. a voice. 
So I want there to be no confusion on why we do things. We spoke about this earlier. I want the conversations to lead to how this is going to impact them. I want them to know where they stand at all times. So there's never this fear of we're going into a meeting that I just threw up on the calendar and they're going to get fired. No, I want them to know exactly where they are and how Mm -hmm. to improve and have those open discussions on how to get there. As a manager for my direct reports, I should be the one to guide them to success. And I don't want them to be afraid to not be the smartest person in the room, but know when they aren't. This requires a lot of work, I feel, on both parts. It's a lot of trust in me for them to develop their skill outside of work or and then me to look for opportunities, me to coach them to do the heavy lifting on following through. There just needs to be that open communication. But at the end of the day, they're not going to be stagnant if I lead by those principles and they're not going to be scared to speak their voice, their concerns. They're not going to be scared to say, I don't think this is the best way to go about it. And I shouldn't be afraid to also let them know this is some of your problem areas, but this is how we can move forward. In the past, I feel like I've gotten a lot of, yes, you're doing great. And then surprises in the reviews period where it's, oh, you missed on this. I feel like maybe we could have to attack that in the beginning, and then I would have not made some of those mistakes. So I'm really trying to influence my direct reports to where they stand, know how to get there. We're all driving this bus together. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny how quickly self-doubt can creep in, even on highly confident and competent people, right? I've, had, I've experienced that myself when you walk in and either it's a new client I'm working with or and I haven't had that that opportunity to build that trust lane up yet. Just not enough interactions have happened yet. And so when you just silence and no feedback or anything and you're just like, oh man, am I good enough for this? Am I doing the right thing? Did I say the right thing? So no matter what, like I, no matter how competent and confident you are, like that self-doubt can creep in. And then can mar future interactions. It can drive the value down on future interactions because you're then second guessing at all times the value you're bringing into the room. Yeah, I actually, I have a note here a little further down. I'm trying to keep myself on track so I don't go off on tangents. So I feel it's inevitable about impulse. Tangents are finally, tangents are wholly welcome here. It is fine. Yeah, I feel I hear a lot more these days imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. I have imposter syndrome. I don't feel that I'm right for the role. I don't feel that it's a good good fit. And to that, I say, if they chose you, someone somewhere thought you were a good fit. And if you feel that there's more to do and more to learn, then go do and learn. But don't doubt your capabilities and don't doubt the opportunities that someone's given you. Capture it and move forward and don't doubt yourself so much. Yeah, like you said. And then and pivoting on what you, that last point, and then also something else you mentioned earlier, stagnation, right? Mm-hmm. How are you both confronting stagnation in your own path? Because we're all human, right? We get tired. Sometimes we've lost the motivation for a week or for a month, or maybe sometimes even longer because of whatever might be ebbing and flowing in our personal lives or passions and things. But stagnation happens. Of course. Sometimes we need to kick ourselves out of it and our teammates out of it. So how, do, how are you doing that? I'll say it's 
more difficult now in a leadership role than as mm. being someone's direct report, the person that's boots on the ground doing the work. It's difficult as a leader to not be stagnant because you're getting the directions from above and you're passing them below and you're in the cycle of meetings and same sort of decisions and the weekly reporting and things like that. So I have found it more difficult to not be stagnant. And in recognizing that, I've seeked out the training that's available through the company. I watch a lot of TED Talks and listen to data podcasts <laughs> and <laughs> things like articles that are coming out of new innovative ideas like AI. I've gone to Tableau seminars and things like that just to make sure that I may not be fully connected to the entire process of how something new and innovative is working, but I know what's relevant in the industry and what's coming up. And I know the tools that I can give my subordinates so that if, hey, I've done this training exercise just for fun or to maintain some kind of skill. If you don't use it, you lose it. Like recently, I've been going back through Python because I've stopped Python coding for a while. And I realized <laughs> that you really do forget a lot of the coding language yes. if you don't use it every day. And I try to instill that in my team as well. I'll send them everything that I'm doing, articles I find interesting and encourage them to do the same, which they've recently started participating and sending me articles. So now I've got something to look and read at that I didn't have to hunt down. But it's fostering this environment that we should all be doing more, learning more, pushing ourselves. I, you said something there that was interesting. I just wrote it down, but that's actually written several things down. But the bidirectional learning, right? If you're pushing like things that you find of interest and beneficial to the team's mission, to, to your team's mission inside the broader org and what you have to do, but then they're also providing those things back. So it's you establish trust. I imagine that starts with trust. Like you are providing something and trusting that they are going to, if they don't read it, there's a good reason. If they have other things they're focusing on that there's a good reason, but also then if they're sending things back to you, it's because then they probably have some trust that you are going to take that input, that it's, that you're not going to take it personally. It's like, oh, Stephanie, you don't know stuff. So let me <laughs> send something. To Absolutely. They think, yeah. yeah, they think, oh, you're going to read it. You're going to pay attention. So I'm going to send this to her. I'm of the mind that it takes three iterations at least of repetitive of doing something to really mm -hmm. influence your people and it's the same way of how you generally learn so you need to see it speak it hear it mm -hmm. for it to really set in so that n the number three just sticks out so if i'm doing something i expect to have to do it three times before it sinks into them that it's something that i value and is important so if I send them an article the first time they don't read it, I'm not going to get my feelings hurt. I send them a second article, still not thinking anything of it. Maybe I'll ask a couple questions, get some of their feedback. Hey, did you find this interesting? Or here's my comments on this article. Now they're interested. And then the third article I send, I feel I will get a lot more traction from their end and participation. Mm -hmm. And that's when I start seeing them really interacting and sending me articles, or if I send them, it's the same thing with the training link. They could find the same resources on their own, yeah. but if I'm not showing that I'm interested, then th why should they be? Yeah. People follow our actions, not our words, which is why it's so important that your actions follow the words that you say and the things that you speak. Yes. So 
for you and for your team for your 2024 goals? What learning and growth is on your radar? We hear a lot of AI talks. <laughs> it's on is everybody's mind. Um, I guess so. But right now, I feel that's only as useful as the person feeding the AI the mm -hmm. data. So part of, I guess, what everybody is interested in is how do you integrate AI with your data warehouse mm -hmm. so that it's ultimately more useful than just you pulling a set of data and doing your own insights. But that's definitely a component for future, way down mm -hmm. the line, how we do that. Currently, our goal is to really focus on machine learning and integrating that with our work stream, doing things that will adapt so that it's not as manual. And that doesn't necessarily mean AI, but it's writing your code and data models that will inherently learn from itself and improve so mm -hmm. that you can focus on other projects. I feel some of the projects that we've been working on lately have been very repetitive, manual, sequential. So how do we get this thing to automate itself so we can be more creative and work on other projects and ideas that have been put to the back burner? When you were mentioning earlier, the, another thought that popped into my head is saying it's more difficult to avoid stagnation as a leader mm -hmm. because of all the kind of mundane we get pulled into. There's a lot that it's, it's back to that archetype of the entrepreneur, the leader, and everybody thinks that, oh, they've got the, that, per, that individual's got a glorious life, but it's really so boring machinations that you have to walk through. Important, but it just doesn't feel, it feels tangential to the mission. And so what I, one thing I am excited about is all of, you know, the outcoming tech and it's our opportunity to allow us to be more human. <laughs> I think, you know, we've been, these are, and yes, I think rightfully some people are worried about what it's going to do, upset their apple cart, give their cheese, things like that. But I also see a lot of opportunity for us to, to what you were saying is automate the mundane, get out of repetitive tasks, make more room to be creative, make more room to be human, make more room to care about other humans and see what we can do. Mm -hmm. It but, makes um, me think about my reporting style versus some of my peers. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's two different ways you can go about reporting, especially weekly or monthly reporting. You mm -hmm. read off the slide, they're interested in number, how did that influence whatever, and then move on. But I think a big component that I try, everybody tunes out. I don't know if you're in a weekly reporting meeting, but nobody's listening. Somebody up higher is caring about these numbers, but I don't care. Mm -hmm. And they're on their phones or doing something else. So you got to give them a reason to care. What is going to impact whoever is in the room to go and look after something? So don't just report out, oh, we gained 5GP in this area. We lost 4% here. Give them an opportunity or advice to seek out a solution. Oh, we lost it here. This is what I think the solution is. I'm not the expert, so I pass the torch. But this, these are the areas I look into and make it more interactive versus just reading off of a slide and reporting out the numbers. I feel that stagnation of just once you get into a process, you just go through the motions. So how do you get out of yeah. that is thinking about new ways and new opportunities. That, that's a conversation that we have with clients and that they realize that they want, even if they didn't know how to articulate it when the conversation or the idea started, is that how might we automate shared knowledge, right? Because that's the PowerPoint, which I hate PowerPoints, 
but there are a bane and a necessary evil at the same time, and that it is a way that we both, as humans, tell a story <laughs> and tell a story purportedly using data. You should be using data to tell that story, but it is a way to then share that knowledge. So how might we be better at automating that shared knowledge that we don't just sit? Because like to your point, a lot of people tune out because we're all smart. We know our business pretty well. And it's, we, for the most part, we are the numbers that we see are the numbers that we expect. Mm -hmm. But how might we automate that shared knowledge so that what we do when we get together in the room, virtual or physical, that we're then being creative in the decision-making and the next layers of questions that we need to then ask. Right, exactly. Yeah, that I haven't asked before. So one of the that's what I'm excited about. It's definitely one of the reasons I got into analytics is yeah. uncovering truth and mm -hmm. predicting the future with data. Yeah. A lot of us were wondering, oh, and financial markets have done this back before people, data science was a, a very ingrained discipline. I think some of the early proponents, all statistical modeling, or think for the most part, but like the quants on the stock traders, like, oh, he predict the future, make lots of money. And not everybody's actually doing that. The future is actually really hard to predict. Now, there's a whole lot that you can find out and, and patterns you can find out as mm -hmm. obviously people have proven because they've made a lot of money in doing <laughs> that kind of trading. Exactly. Yeah. No, crystal balls. Crystal balls are fun. I think everybody, I'm surprised I actually don't have one in my office. I should probably get a crystal ball. You absolutely should. And just put an Excel spreadsheet inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the first thing somebody would want to do is put Excel. How do, you know, it's like, that's great, but how do I export that to Excel? Oh, that's a, that is a joke for the ages. Okay. So now, Stephanie, so you talked a little bit about what you're learning and growth, what you personally are doing and what you're challenging. What are, what are you challenging others to do on the learning and growth side? I'm challenging. I feel like I'm going to be a broken record here, but yeah, I'm yeah, challenging others to never stop. You don't know what you don't know, just mm -hmm. a lot. And there's always something to learn, someone to learn from, some way to improve. And I feel that a lot of people have a fear that is holding them back from success, whether that's the imposter syndrome that we spoke about, mm -hmm. where it's this idea that you, it's too much. There's too much out there that you don't know, or you're never going to get ahead because of X, Y, and Z. There's this fear in all of us that how do I progress? And so then you don't move. You just stay where you're at, but never stop trying new things, seeking opportunities. And when they're presented to you to capture them, I've been doing a lot of personal challenges in my past. One being this, I'm putting yeah. myself out there. I'm sharing a story that who knows, maybe five people will hear, but somebody can relate to and learn from or or not and give me advice. Maybe somebody somewhere will message me and say, I didn't really agree with your point. That's great. At least I'm opening up some sort of conversation. So don't stop working towards your goals, challenging yourself, learning more, doing more, being more. Yeah. Awesome. Last question on the learning and growth side. What do you have some thoughts or opinions on what many, that many people would benefit in learning or doing? We've talked about some of those yeah. from the leadership side, but is there anything you'd either want to highlight that we already talked about or something that we haven't yet talked about that you, that... I, so this is going to be the personal feeling mm -hmm. about learning being the first point, learn about who you work with 
And mm-hmm. I don't just mean it's like you don't have to get deep and philosophical with it. You don't need to know that their grandmother's best friend, sister's cousin's husband is in the hospital. That's not what I mean. You should know the basics of their personal life. You should know how many kids they have and, you know, where they went to, where they go to school, how old they are, things like that, because it's inevitably going to impact their work life. On average, you should expect that your direct reports are going to be out at least once a week for maybe 40 minutes an hour, or it could be a full day due to family incidences, personal incidences, doctor's appointments, medical emergencies, Mm -hmm. anything like that. So you should know the basics about the person that you're surrounding. And also, you don't know who your coworker, boss, direct report is going to become in the next five, 10 years outside of your own career. So having that personal connection to them is only going to benefit you connecting with a job, hiring in the future or being hired, consulting with them, or you just never know. So that would be the first thing that I think people should start doing their leadership and just anybody in general should start learning about who you're working with. And then on the doing side, figuring out where you want to go. And that's almost the hardest thing anybody can do in their life, especially coming up. Do you want to be a leader? Do you want to report the news? Do you want to be a data modeler? Do you want to be a data scientist? You've got to figure out that piece either by experience or Mm -hmm. learning about it, talking to somebody about it, and then go after it. That just goes back to everything that we've been talking about here is never stop. Learn and progress. Figure out what you want and just do it. And tell your story. I feel like we all have something to say, a life experience. And I think we all have something to share that can be generalized or felt on that emotional level or an intellectual level. And I feel in this world that we're now living in, technology, we're connected, but we're not building relationships. And so I think this is one way if you share your story, you can connect with somebody from anywhere in the world. I love that point because, yes, it, it's back to rec- recognizing our own personal experiences and biases. And I was incredibly lucky with a company I worked at for a long time here, based here in Austin, that they lived that principle that you talked about, like getting to know people, like knowing what there's going on, knowing those personal pressures. Because they were, and I thankfully learned those habits in working there. And it's, hey, ha- have an understanding and both trust people, but also have an understanding about their personal lives mm-hmm. and how that might impact so that you un- you see that, oh, this person, she is very dedicated, just has X, Y, and Z. And so you don't worry less about, oh, is it going to get done at by 12, is it just going to get done by the deadline it needs to get done? Not as, is it happening during the confines of the normal eight to five? So though that trust can be extended, but, you know, much more easily to your point, like when you know and are curious and ask questions and understand the people that you work with can see the strengths and weaknesses better. Yeah. And we have to, so to be honest, work for me is not even top five most important things in my life, (laughs) family and things like that definitely come first. So if I think that you've got to As a leader, you've got to understand that your team also thinks that and be Mm -hmm. okay with that. That's okay. Um, That's not to say that they don't care about their work. It just is going to influence how they get their work done. And as long as you're trusting your employees and you're trusting your leadership and your coworkers that it's going to get done or that and knowing these things are going to happen, you can better prepare yourself, prioritize, have that open communication and be okay moving forward 
with those relationships, knowing that we're just here to work. We have goals to accomplish. We want to progress in our careers or not. That's something you should also learn from each other. And it's just going to foster a better environment to get things done and achieve goals if you know that some of these things outside of work exist. To your point, it's like the not everybody's going to have and actually you don't want people to have work as like their number one priority. Yeah. But we all do as the vast majority of humans love to be good at things. Mm -hmm. right? And so you want to set them up, set people up to be good at things. So I love these last few thoughts that you've shared. Stephanie, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do? I'm on LinkedIn. I encourage everybody to go ahead and look me up and I'd be totally open to communicating, answering any questions or giving additional insights and stuff like that there. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, or my co-host, Lee Harper, on LinkedIn via DM or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.